Welcome to the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council with hosts Grace Evans and Moses Bratrude. Stay informed on the top stories on life, family, and religious freedom. Get the facts, stand for truth. Hello and welcome to the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is an extremely special episode because, as I was saying to Representative Hudson a moment ago, this is the first time in three years of doing this that we have had an elected official on our podcast. And it's really exciting I, to me that Representative Hudson is one of the is the first one because in his short time at the legislature, he has made a mark. And we're going to talk about that. And um, he uh, you were elected last fall. Correct. Sorry, fall of 2022. Correct. Yes. And um, and he I don't think you knew that when you were elected that you were going to have the insane roller coaster session that we ended up having this past year. No, I mean, we certainly anticipated a very different result. Everyone was talking about the red wave. Right. right. And so the expectation um, was and, you know, you try to be cautious about these things, but the expectation was that we were going to win. We were going to have a majority. Uh, we were going to be in charge of the way things happened down the legislature and that we were going to be able to do the things we wanted to do. And the experience that we ended up having in 2023 was very much the opposite of that. We were railroaded at every turn and we had to contend with what that feels like, which is not good. I'm sure. Uh, and I want to back up a little bit because I'm assuming that before you got into politics, which was not that long ago, you um, and I can tell because you seem very normal. <laughs> so you obviously haven't been in the swamp for too long. Um, I assume that before this you had a day job and maybe you still have a day job where people don't just yell at you all the time and just shout horrifying abuse at you, which I've seen that you get on Twitter and probably on other platforms excuse me, X, formerly Twitter. So what, what like, what led you to say, I'm going to, I'm going to cross into no man's land. I'm going to do this. Not, I'm just not, I'm not going to just let someone else do it. I'm going to do this. Yeah. I've been doing what would be considered blue collar work for my entire adult life and continue to, to work in, in management in that regard. Um, but I've always had a, strong interest in the political. And that began in high school. Uh, I did what um, a, a lot of listeners may recognize as PTS, uh, PTSO or the post- oh, PSEO. Thank, right. thank you. Thank the you thing they tried me. to, the thing they tried to ban. Yes. I was getting that <laughs> conflated with PTSD because that's what it felt like coming out of 2023 <laughs> legislative session. I'm sure. But yes, PSEO, post-secondary enrollment options, where I got to spend part of my time at uh, community college. And so when I was driving from high school to the college was right in that 11 o'clock space. And that's when Rush Limbaugh was on. Sure. And back in those days, my knowledge of him was framed by the mainstream, which is he's basically a grand wizard for the KKK and, you know, yada, yada. And so as a teenager, of course, my thought process is, well, that should be entertaining. Let's see what he has to say. And uh, much to my amazement, I realized that all the things that he was saying were just like common sense, normal stuff that I and everyone I know believes. And so why is that so offensive? And that kind of became the kind of the catalyzing moment that got me interested in, in politics. And then life happens. You meet someone, you get married, you spend a few years out of state. Uh, and when I came back and we started to have children, uh, that was the moment that the Tea Party dawned with mm. the first um, term of Barack Obama. And that's when I started to get my hands dirty. I started to get involved. I formed a Tea Party organization. I became the chair of a statewide Tea Party organization. And I, I had a little bit of a background in broadcast radio and, and print media. And so I kind of gravitated towards personalities like Sue Jeffers and um, the folks at KTLK. And sure. Eventually, that led to the opportunity to be an evening radio host, okay. uh, which I did for about three years. Oh, wow. And, so this uh, isn't your first merry-go-round. Before no. you were elected, you had plenty of experience in front of the mic. Correct. Gotcha. Yes. And... I was active in, you know, I, it's kind of funny. I, I, I've lived in a lot of places in the metro. I've convened caucuses in a lot of different BPOUs. I've seen it a lot of different ways. And when we landed in Wright County in Albertville, where we are now, um, I had no anticipation that I was going to have the opportunity to run for anything because we have really good, solid representation. There's no reason to challenge anybody. Mm -hmm. and, 
But the redistricting process that happens every 10 years after caucus or Mm -hmm. um, after the census shakes the table up and pieces fall off the board and you got all these open spaces and it creates opportunities. And that's what happened in this case is uh, Representative Lucero, then Representative Lucero had an open Senate district that he had the opportunity to run for and that left his seat open, which I was more than willing to step into and finally get into the arena. Sure. So even though you're relatively new to elected office, you've been in the game. You've been in local politics. You've been in radio. So it wasn't, perhaps for other people who haven't had that experience, it would have been more of a baptism by fire. But sounds like you knew a little bit of what you were getting into. The most common metaphor you hear from newly elected officials is drinking from the fire hose. Mm. I did not have that same experience. Um, I sat on a city council for seven years. I had all the other experience we've talked about. So for me... I had that kind of framework through which to filter the experience. I understand the drinking from a fire hose, what that is describing. Right. But I had a frame, a little bit of an advantage in being able to understand how to prioritize all the information that's coming at you and and focus on what you want to focus on. Sure. So this, uh, now that you are in elected office, uh, uh, I should say, uh, statewide office not statewide office you know what i mean yeah uh, well, it's a state, state government office. state yes. office yeah, yeah sure yeah. um what are your main priorities as a legislator i mean so my my priority overall is individual liberty right um i hold life to be the moral standard of value human life mm. and our public policy really ought to be centered on that and that should go without saying, but it doesn't. Right. Um, and you know, liberty is not just something that would be nice to have. It's an essential component of the our human nature. What distinguishes us from you know, lower life forms, from animals, is the fact that we actually need to engage our cognition. We need to reason. We need to observe. We need to process. We need to synthesize. We need to come to decisions. We need to make choices. That's what morality is. It's the code that you utilize in order to choose what you're going to do in any given sure. moment, from the trivial to the extremely significant, sacred, and what have you. Um, and so having the freedom to follow your conscience in whatever area of life you're dealing with is absolutely essential to to being a an actualized human person. Mm-hmm. Um, and government's job is to preserve the capacity of each person within their jurisdiction to be able to do that, provided that they are not abusing their freedom sure. to encroach upon the rights of others. That's really interesting. So would you call yourself um, a conservative? Of course you would, but this uh, what I'm what I'm uh, I had a recent conversation with a libertarian. It was mm-hmm. interesting. Um, could you briefly say, for my own curiosity, what do you think makes your position different from what a libertarian would say? It's so fascinating that you asked that question because I have a very uh, contentious relationship with the libertarian community mm-hmm. because I have very intentionally attempted to reclaim the libertarian label. Okay. To, sure. to mean the dictionary definition of the word. The dictionary definition of the word is an advocate for liberty, which I most certainly am. Mm-hmm. And every conservative that I know most certainly is. Uh, the, the tension arises in distinguishing liberty from licentiousness. Sure. Right. Which um, our, founder, our founding fathers recognized. 100%. Yeah. That you you actually, and, and this is... This lies at the root of where I feel our job on our side of the cultural battle, um, the, the, the root of what it is that we need to get at is this point, which is that one is not entitled to liberty. Mm. One must earn the capacity to live free by developing their own sense of responsibility and duty and honor and virtue. But when when you are a moral and religious people, as our founding fathers noted, Mm -hmm. then you get to be free. That's how it works. It's not, we're gonna give you freedom to just do whatever whimsical thing comes into your mind. And this this is very obvious when people get all kind of wrinkly about this type of idea. I just point them to the parent-child relationship. 
right? Like your child is not free in any meaningful sense of, sense of the word. Right. You, you are very much guiding and constricting the scope of their possible behaviors and bringing them back on course whenever they deviate. And you're not doing that because you're a dictator. You're not doing that because you hate them. You're not doing that as some sort of violation of their rights. Quite the contrary. What you're trying to do is develop their capacity to utilize their judgment to make good choices that are healthy for them and wholesome and edifying and productive so that as they develop that capacity, you can let go. Mm -hmm. And these are the errors, a lot of the parental errors that occur through the course of a a child being raised um, are not getting that balance right at any given stage. It's like you, when they're young, they need to be well constrained. And as they develop the ability to make good decisions and, and have rational values that they pursue, you need to be willing to let, let go and let them be their own person. Sure. Um, Now that that's a difficult metaphor to, just copy and paste onto government because the government is not our parent right. and we are not children as adults. So it's sort of like we are, we have been uh, under the tutelage of the people who came before us. Yes. Like our, our, our either our literal parents or mm-hmm. the people who were preserving our freedoms and our liberties in Minnesota and in yes. this country from 1776 to today. And now you're saying, yeah, like that's right. And our job is to pass on those not just values, but that whole system to onto um, our our literal children and also just everyone else who is going to come after us in our society. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, there's there's a, and this will be a controversial clip for somebody to snip out of this, but there is a nugget of truth into what Hillary Clinton said regarding it takes a village mm. that often gets missed by the conservative side of, of this cultural debate. You know, sometimes individualism can become a sin. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Um, it can be be taken to an extent where it becomes an error. The fact of the matter is we do have communal responsibilities. And if you go back and you look at biblical accounts, I mean, Achan is an example that I point to all the time with with uh, ancient Israel and, um, you know, him disobeying God and taking spoils from Jericho that he wasn't supposed to take. Right. Uh, there were 30 some odd men who didn't do what he did paid the price for what he did. Mm-hmm. There is such a thing as communal responsibility. And so the when it, when it comes to things like your parental role or your role as a civic agent in voting or engaging in politics, you have to be, you know, the serenity prayer comes to mind of accepting the things that you cannot change. You have to be willing to approach the process with a certain degree of grace and acceptance that God's will is going to be done regardless of your will. However, if you're apathetic and you pretend as though you only need to care about what you're doing and what you think and what your values are and what's important to you, you're going to get what you deserve in terms of the communal consequence of that attitude. That's really interesting. And I think that gets into something I was going to ask you because I've seen you talk about this. You and I know that there are plenty of Christians in every denomination who think that, who are allergic to politics and, you know, I think we all understand that, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's gross. You know, who wants to actually turn that on? And like, we all understand that a steady diet of that can be really unhealthy and we need to, you know, detox. But there are Christians who think for theological reason, reasons, like because we have here no lasting city or because we're, um, you know, not to pick on Baptists, but like they Baptists have like a lot of theological reasons going back hundreds of years to not engage in this in the civil government. But nowadays, I think many Baptists realizing that that's not actually tenable. Um, What would you say to Christians who think, um, uh, what's the phrase like, not my circus, not my monkeys or something like that, where like, I'm I'm a Christian, I'm going to go to church. I'm but I'm not going to maybe I'll vote because 80% of people in the state do but I'm not going to get involved in any other sense than that. Would you say that that is sort of um, abdicating the responsibilities that you've been talking about? The question that I would ask to anybody who articulated that type of a position is who is your biblical model? Like point, point to a biblical account 
where someone who we are clearly meant to model ourselves after, starting with Jesus Christ and working your way down, behaved in that way. They were disinterested in what was going on around them. Um, they weren't engaging with the powers that be. They weren't in the public square mm -hmm. condemning the evil that was present at every opportunity. Point to that person because yeah. I don't know who they are. Right. Like you go down the list, uh, you know, starting from from the the very beginning, the very beginning, um, the 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 whole interaction between Adam and Eve and God and Satan is a political interaction. Mm -hmm. It is who shall be in charge, right? Whose law shall reign over this domain? And it's not some ethereal spiritual question. It's what are you going to, it's about fruit. Like, what are you going to eat? What are you going to do tangibly, physically with your life? And is that in alignment with what you've been commanded from the person who has the authority to rule? Right. That is a political question. Mm -hmm. And you go down the list of every account from there until the very end. And it's all about who's in charge, what is right and wrong, how you should behave, how you should act, in which context. And all of, all of our models, all of them were raucous. They were controversial. They were in the thick of it. They were advisors to the king, uh, or they were standing in the king's court and telling him what he ought to do. Right. Right. Uh, I, I keep going back to Moses and Pharaoh because it's, it's one of my favorite examples because of the context in which Moses was operating. Moses didn't know it was going to take 10 times. Right. He had no idea. Mm -hmm. He didn't know when he went in there. I like to think about like the seventh time, which I, I, I might be getting it wrong, but it was I think it might have been the hail of, OK, we've done this six times before. I'm going in there. Mm -hmm. I'm telling him the, the country's already been devastated by plague and by by illness and the cattle have all died. And now I'm telling him there's going to be hail with fire intermingled in it. That's got to be the right. nail in the coffin. Come on. That's got to convince. <laughs> Come on. Pharaoh. And, then, and it took it took. Three more times of walking into that court. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that is such an object lesson of both the attitude that we should have about how we engage with the world around us, the persistence, the faithfulness, mm -hmm. that we're doing this because it's the right thing to do, not because we think it's going to be objectively, strategically effective. Sure. The, the objectively, strategic, effective result of Moses walking into that court of Pharaoh who regarded himself and was regarded by others as the God of the universe at the time, the objective result of that interaction should have been the first time his execution on the spot. Mm, right. But he was able to go in there nine more times. Right. So, you know, that's that I, I think the lessons that we draw from those accounts should inform how we actually act, not just how we think and pray and feel and believe and worship the songs that we sing in church, but what we do on the ground in real physical life, engaging with the institutions around us. That makes perfect sense to me. I, I think that's a extremely biblical way of putting it. So you're saying Christians who think that we shouldn't engage too much in politics, don't get our hands dirty, Look at our forebears in the faith, Daniel, Moses, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, Paul with Agrippa. All, you know, I, as you were talking, I was just thinking, that's so true. There's so many examples and very few, if any examples, as you said, of people in the Bible who are like, nope, not going to, I'm just going to walk away from that. There is one that comes to mind. Jonah? Jonah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right. And look how that turned out. <laughs> exactly. I love that. It's, it is, and, and there's probably others if I could spend some more time thinking about it. But I mean, there are examples of people who took the attitude that you describe, which is that that's not my problem. Nineveh is not my problem. Right. Those people are terrible. I'm glad I'm not them. Mm -hmm. Like that kind of pharisaical attitude of, Thank you, Lord, that I was not born a Gentile, yeah. right? Um, and we know that that attitude is condemned. That attitude is from the pit of hell. Yeah. And so if that's the attitude that we're bringing to our Christian walk, something is deeply wrong. That, you know, that really makes me think, just to get very specific about the attitude that some people have, some conservatives have, toward the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Yes. Which I fully understand. And I live in St. Paul, but... You know, I'd like to say that I'm in it, but not of it. You know, right. like yeah. there's so much mm -hmm. going on in the Twin Cities that is really bad, mm -hmm. so bad. And like, you know, stuff that maybe we're not even seeing in other big cities in the country, like similar stuff. But like, you know, it's truly 
it, I don't want to understate how bad it is. But yet if people uh, from areas of the state yeah. where they still there's still some common sense and there's um, people just want to live their lives and, um, you know, respect individual freedom like you've been discussing. If those people give up on the Twin Cities, we're in a bad place. Yeah. And if legislators give up on the Twin Cities. 100%. That's that's really interesting. And I think that's that's something that Christians need to think about. You know, obviously, like you and I probably have seen this where there's Christians who are so into the Twin Cities and that as a mission field that they maybe do not look at the big picture and not see the like just because they're looking at the Twin Cities and they're and 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 it doesn't seem possible to reform the Twin Cities politically, so they're not talking about that. They're only talking about the gospel and um, the homeless issue or something like that. And that's really good. But what you're talking about is we need to think of, you know, to talk about it biblically, we need to think of the good of the city. Even if it seems like the people in that city are so <laughs> loath to hear that. Yeah, I mean, so one of the interesting reversals that has happened over the past few years, you know, you bring up libertarianism and this idea of local control. Local control as a concept has been appropriated by the left in defense of the absurdity that governs Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, and what I've come to realize and have tried to put out there into the public discourse is the realization that no, you, local control the, the, the whole concept of the lesser magistrate is a, is a solid concept, just as liberty itself is a solid concept. But like any good political concept, it still requires that underlying moral and religious people, right? Like right. there has to be, like at the heart of any political or economic system lies the individual actor. And the integrity and virtue and productivity of the individual actor in combination with the general uh disposition of everyone else is what determines the success or failure of the system. You're not going to come up with a system that somehow compensates for everybody in it acting like criminals and thugs, sure. and <laughs> dishonorable right. rep reprobates. Um, and so for to bring that to the level of municipalities, the when Minneapolis and St. Paul and Ramsey County uh, and Hennepin decide that they're not going to prosecute crime, that they're going to tolerate homeless camps all over the place, um, that they're going to invite and even celebrate licentiousness and degeneracy. I, out in Albertville, am not somehow immunized from the cultural impact of that right. or the fiscal impact. Of Absolutely. That. You know, that crime is eventually going to cross the Crow River into Wright County. Um, the, the, the ideas, the, the cultural rot is eventually going to impact me. And so even from, even from a, from a self-serving standpoint, I have an interest in ministering to the Twin Cities in Minneapolis and yeah. St. Paul. But then you bring in the Christian aspect and we, what is the great commission? Go forth and make disciples of all the nations. There's no exemption in there for Minneapolis and St. Paul or any other right. place where Nineveh or any of these places. And so we should be going forth to make disciples. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean pious people who sit in their houses and go to their house church on Sunday and never apply any of it to their actual real life. Making a right. disciple is encouraging somebody to act out their faith in the crazy concept that they actually believe it's real. Right. right. That they actually believe that it matters, that Absolutely. it has some sort of impact upon the real world. And if you get people who are willing to do that, it it doesn't, you know, it's I go back to the account of Abraham arguing with God over how many righteous men he needs to find in Sodom before he spares it, right? Of it the number isn't that high of the number of people who need to be righteous, which means to be justified and to be working out their, their salvation and to be um, sanctifying themselves and working towards that. It doesn't take that many people to purify, or at least purify is a strong word, at least grant some, like the angel of death will pass sure. right? yeah. over that community if there are just a few righteous people who are working to make it a better place. The people whose, whose lights are shining in the darkness, Yes, God prospers them so that they're... Uh, their work has much more good effect 
than the evil effect of it, those people around them. Like yes. on a on a per capita per person basis. <laughs> Light is objectively more powerful than dark. Darkness actually has no power. Sure. It's the absence of power. Right. Right. And so the, it's such a great metaphor. And God, through his through his eternal wisdom and majesty, uh, exhibited all these things metaphorically in his creation. Like the actual physical way that light works in the real world versus darkness is a, is a perfect metaphor for his truth, his word, his way of being, his nature as compared to its opposite. I love that. This is, this is, this is on another level from what I expected us to be talking about, <laughs> which is your work at the legislature. And I do want to definitely focus on that. But what you're talking about now is like our Christian witness, yeah. which is the most important thing that we have, you know, in this world. And that does, um, get me thinking about something that our audience knows about our church ambassador network. And through that initiative, we're bringing pastors from across the state, from War Road and every other corner. We're bringing them to the state capitol to meet with and pray for legislators, among, among other things that it does. Have you been able to meet with pastors during your time? Yes. And it's been such a blessing, such a blessing. In fact, that my absolute favorite narrative experience of the 2023 legislative session and the year as a whole has been meeting Jeff Evans and Joshua and the other pastors who work in the Church Ambassador Network and having that those touchstones, those moments where they would always come to my office when, whether I realized it or not, I needed to hear from them. Mm. And I needed that encouragement. And I needed that that recentering, that reconnection. Um, but I, I grew to very quickly gain a, a high level of affection for them. And then I met um, John Helmsberger, your current. Has that transition actually taken place yet? Not until the end of the year. Okay. Yeah. So your current president, I can still say. Mm -hmm. I met him at a meeting and we had a brief conversation. And I was like, oh, I really like this guy. This is a good guy. And then I went to your guys' gala. And he made the announcement that he was stepping down mm -hmm. and I, and I was, I was, my countenance fell. I was like, oh man, I was just getting to know this guy who seemed so awesome. And yeah. then they announced that Jeff was uh, taking over uh -huh. and it was like a rocket ship to the moon. I'm like, this is awesome. That's and so great. I'm so glad that this is the direction things are going. And so, yeah, no, it's been a tremendous blessing and I'm so glad, you know, I listened to one of your recent episodes where Jeff talked about um, the, the rationale behind this space here, which is very close to the Capitol, mm -hmm. walking distance, um, and being that resource for us legislators. And I very much look forward to it. it I will make heavy use in 2024. That's that's so great. And yeah, it is a five-minute walk from here to the Rotunda, Yeah, if you walk quickly. Sure. Um, although your office is going to be, and maybe this is a sore spot, but are you going to be in Centennial this next or only after the session? I don't know for sure. I believe it's after the session. Okay. My, my, the way it was explained to me and think these things change as time goes on is that as soon as we adjourn sign a die at the end of the session, we're basically going to be immediately kicked out of our offices. So um, we won't be in the SOB anymore. This is so this is kind of inside baseball, folks uh, who are watching and listening. But uh, the state government is going to spend what? half a billion dollars, something like some insane amount refurbishing the state office building where uh, le legislators have their offices. And okay, uh, I love the building. I think it's fine. If if there if it needs to be fixed, that's that's great. Let's do it. But there this huge expansion. And what I just noticed yesterday, which is killing me because I have a bit of a tree hugger thing going on. And that's my own problem. I'm dealing with it. But like they cut down these gorgeous old trees, kitty corner between the state office building and the Capitol. And they must have just done it yesterday because I was driving home and I saw that. That made me sick. Like, it's just, okay, yeah, sometimes you need to cut down trees. But yeah. I just think yeah. it's it's just so craven the way they do, they're doing it. And that is not, that is really not our, our main focus for today. But as a consequence, legislators are going to be pushed into a somewhat inferior office space 
after the end of this legislative session for a couple of years. I, I think the silver lining of that, though, is we could use the humbling, right? Mm. Like putting putting us in cubicles for a couple of years <laughs> might be might get us in the right attitude of how we should be approaching. Well, job, so. I you're yeah, maybe you're in that office and, and I'm sure your perspective on that is more valuable than mine. That's that's good. So you got folks, you heard it from the horse's mouth. Representative Hudson says, bring your pastor to the Capitol have those, and we're, we're trying to recruit hundreds of new pastors for this coming session so that every legislator meets with multiple pastors from their district. And that is that is our goal. We're not there yet. And we need your help, folks at home, to talk to your pastor, get them on our list. Just go to mfc.org forward slash churches. That's all you need to remember. Sign up. We'll get in touch. We'll bring you down to the Capitol. So, um, you saw the ups and downs of the insane 2023 session, as we've discussed. What was your 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 proudest moment, your biggest accomplishment in your first year? And what do you think was the hardest moment? So my, my proudest moment, I've actually tried to keep relatively uh, quiet. But I have to answer the question honestly, right? So it was not one of my more raucous public um, rabble-rousing rhetorical moments that I'm probably more known for. It, it You've was... definitely gone viral. <laughs> and I've seen those clips. And to be honest with you, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just trying to sure. make you sound good or something, but I was like, red states are looking at this and, and they're like, why can't we have people like that? Honestly. Sure. Sure. Like, sure. Cause I watch clips from red state legislatures sometimes and yeah, and it, you know, sometimes it's good, but other times I'm like, they need more people like representative Hudson or uh, I could name other names, but, yeah. I, but you're here now. So I won't. And um, anyway, continue. So you, not the viral moments. Yeah. So there was, there was a bill that came before one of the committees I'm on is the children and families committee. And there was a bill that came before us, uh, that was the Indian Family Preservation Act, I believe it's called. And I could go, I, I'll try to avoid going into the weeds of its origins and why it came. But basically, the effect of the bill was to try to do everything possible within the context of state agencies to ensure that the children of tribal citizens remain with their family as opposed to being placed, if they have to be taken out of their immediate home, that they're given to a grandparent or an uncle or something along those lines, as opposed to being sent somewhere across the state with somebody who they don't know and aren't related to and has no idea what their culture is like. And sure. And so I had a really kind of a, a, a nerdy technical question about how that bill worked. And so I sent an email to the author, Representative Heather Keeler, Democrat, who's the vice chair of the Children Families Committee. Um, asking her, hey, what, can you explain this to me? And her response to the fact that I cared at all about this bill was so immense. She was just so grateful and happy that somebody cared enough to ask. And so she responded with much more than I asked for in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, here's the background. Here's some people you should talk to. Here's what, where this all came from and what it was about. And ultimately, I was able to play some role in influencing our caucus on the Republican side to, at the end of the day, unanimously pass this thing off the floor. Oh, that's great. And it was not something that, you know, I didn't wake up that morning or enter that month thinking that that was what was going to happen. Um, but the, the argument that I made to the caucus was, look, at the heart of this thing is everything that we believe in. You know, they're talking about sovereignty. They're talking about family. Mm -hmm. They're talking about the, the tradition and the integrity of culture mm -hmm. and how important these are all things that we're on board with. Yeah. And so to have an opportunity to showcase that and say, you know what, th this is the, what conservatism is about. This is what the Republican message is centered on. And it's fantastic that, you know, for whatever coincidental reason, it happens to align with the Democrats priorities in this one instant. Mm -hmm. To me, that was a bright light in the midst of what was otherwise a very dark legislative session. Absolutely. I'm sure that, I have I have seen this before, uh, and I hope I'll see more of it, where safeguarding kids can actually be one of those few places where bipartisanship is still possible, whether it's reforming the foster system. I've seen that. Um, I've seen and, and even protecting kids online. 
this is something that I've talked about with a couple people recently, and you're probably familiar at least a little bit with bills that have been passed in other states for age verification of adult sites that have been bipartisan. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's also a bill passed by uh, not bipartisan, as far as I'm aware, uh, by uh, in California. It's basically saying, you know, the idea is we have um, we have uh, certain things need to be designed so that they're child friendly and and child safe. Well, the internet is accessible for children. Mm. So, in other words, if like let's say the gap between stair railings at a public building was so wide that a two year old could fall to his death, right, right, right. that would be illegal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's think about the sometimes deadly, but also not deadly, but the the harms that can befall a child in it click 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 yep. click right yep. Yep. you you know that i know that because we're parents if right. not for any other reason but democrats in california of all places they're saying maybe we need to say that if the internet needs to be safe for children at least in some way with while well, protecting freedom of speech and of course the uh, the adult industry and facebook they're all against this and um, and I saw that Senator Aaron May Quaid and others in, have have introduced a similar bill in Minnesota. Now I I haven't looked at the bill. Maybe you haven't looked at the bill. I I have I don't know if this is something that I would support, but I just love to see I love to see the heart there. Yeah, because taking down some corporations that want to profit off children, yeah. while making the internet safer for kids. I mean, that's going to be something where that's going to be close to my heart. I what do you think about that type of thing? No, absolutely. So one of my pet peeves rhetorically and um, conceptually in the law is the abuse of the concept of freedom of speech Mm. in particular. So freedom of speech is deferred to to justify all sorts of behaviors that are not speech, um, that have nothing whatsoever to do with political expression and that are objectively harmful. So, you know, blocking a freeway. Um, taking over an intersection, right? Um, shutting. They even call it shutting down infrastructure. None of those things are speech, mm-hmm. n- not by any definition of the word. Um, and so, your your freedom to express yourself, to petition your government for redress of grievance, is not impeded by me telling you to get out of the road, right? Right. It is also not impeded by my uh, telling you that you will not put smut in front of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that. You know, it's 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 really bizarre to me because we've apparently only had to have this argument in recent years. This has been universally understood as a you don't even have to articulate the distinction for the virtually the entirety of our nation's existence up until about five minutes ago. Right now, all of a sudden, people are pretending that they don't understand what the curation of content means. Mm-hmm. That that we just let anything into our libraries, we just let anything into our syllabi and our schools and our curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if you have any sort of standard whatsoever that says you will include this and not include that, that that's somehow a violation of free speech. No, you can get together with your, your uh, I'll forgive my crudest, but your your skanky friends um, and indulge in that all you want privately in your own home. As adults. As adults. But you're not going to be able to do that in front of my kids. You're not going to nope. be able to include my kid in that. Absolutely right? not. And there's nothing yeah. about that conviction that in any way encroaches upon freedom of speech. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I, I I told you before we started filming that I had been talking with a libertarian uh, uh, or uh, that was at what we were filming, actually. And he was like, no, no way. Are we doing age verification? You know, no skin off my nose. You know, he, he was like, he'll, he'll make noises about parents need to keep their kids safe. Yeah. But the idea that the state government should do anything to, to affect that. So no. let me directly respond to that sentiment. Yeah. Parents should keep their kids safe. Matt Walsh speaks to this. The idea that I, as a parent, am solely responsible for keeping my child safe is utterly absurd and goes against everything we've been talking about this entire time. You you made the reference to the the distance between the gaps and the stair rail, right? In in terms of a two-year-old being able to fall through. That's obviously a communal responsibility. Absolutely. Like you have a responsibility as a property owner and we have a responsibility as a society to impose regulation that requires you to protect children by having that space appropriately narrow. Mm -hmm. And in similar fashion, we as a society have a responsibility to impose 
upon folks who want to engage in morally ambiguous behavior that they are not going to subject that intentionally or unintentionally to our children. Um, that is not a responsibility that I, I, as a parent, am not solely burdened with having to to constantly actively shield my child from all of the depravity that anybody around me wants to engage in. No, they have an affirmative responsibility to not expose my child to that depravity. Right. And if they violate that, they should be on the wrong side of, of the law. This is a breath of fresh air. I, I love to hear that. And um, and you're talking about, and I think I think some conservatives need to hear this. They need to hear that protecting kids is, should, must be done while also protecting individual freedoms. Yes. Those things are not incompatible. Not at all. You know, one of the things, uh, you know, I've, I spent a lot of time, everybody goes through these different phases of ideological kind of ruts. And one of my ruts was with Ayn Rand and objectivism mm, and sure. Atlas Shrugged and all of this. And um, one of the things that she said that has always stuck with me, and I believe 100% to be true, is that an actual principle never, ever comes into conflict with another principle. Hmm. And so this idea that we have to balance individual rights with the protection of children, no. Where there's a seeming incongruity between those two priorities, you're not perceiving reality correctly. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because the individual, that child has an individual right to not be subjected to your depravity. Right. Absolutely. And so what we're actually doing is upholding that child's right and upholding their parents' right to fulfill their responsibility to that child mm -hmm. by limiting your action. And that is the essence of the law. Every single law we have is a limitation upon your action to prevent you from violating the rights of somebody else. So spare me. That's great. Thank you. Uh, I just, yeah, thank you, Representative Hudson. That I think is probably the most cogent uh, explanation of that um, seeming incongruity, as you said, that we've had on this podcast, because it comes up a lot Yeah. as we as we deal with um, current events and talking about what conservatives are doing and sometimes conservatives fighting with each other and things like that about that exact issue. So we're coming in for landing. I want to... Uh, I want to ask you about something you posted on Twitter recently, uh, sure. talking about coming on this show. You posted a Bible verse, and what I took from that is that you're talking about Christians having a prophetic role based on uh, the Proverbs passage that you shared in our society, and specifically to call out and name the workers of evil. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, and I'm not the first person to talk about this, and hopefully I won't be the last, but there's this kind of modern Christian, Christian-esque idea out there that our responsibility as Christians, professing Christians, is to be, quote-unquote, Christ-like. And what people mean by that is apparently not to actually behave the way Christ did, because mm -hmm. the, the implication is, we should just be nice all the time and everything we say should be edifying and every word that falls out of our mouth should result in people going, oh, mm, oh, isn't that nice? Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm, I like that. Um, when in point of fact, if you look at, again, Christ as the best model of how we ought to behave, but then, of course, all of the images that preceded him mm -hmm. of prophets and you know folks who walked in righteousness alongside God. They were all offensive people. Mm. Okay. Yeah. All of them. Without exception. Without exception, they offended virtually everyone who they came into contact with. And the reason why is because that, well, it's it's said, I actually have the verse outside my office over at the state office building mm -hmm. um, where people hated the light because they loved the darkness, mm. because their works are evil, right? They don't want to have to acknowledge the fact that there is a light, there is a standard, there is a God. And so when you bring that up, they're going to recoil, they're going to lash out, they're going to want to crucify you ultimately. That's what they're going to want to do. Right. And so when, when, when Jesus tells us to pick up your cross and follow him, is that a metaphor? Sure. Can it be literal? You <laughs> bet it can be literal, yep. right? Of like, you need to be willing to die mm -hmm. in every way, metaphorically yep. and actually, in order to follow me, in order to stand for who I am and what I am. 
Um, and if we're not willing to do that, then I don't understand. Like it's, I actually think it's a special kind of blasphemy mm. to claim to be a Christian and not be willing to do that. And I, I, I think there's, there's biblical reason to suspect that the punishment for presenting yourself as somebody who is of God and of Christ, but when the pressure is turned up and the heat is turned up and you're not willing to, to, to stand on what's true, yep. um, that you're going to, you're going to pay a real price for that. Absolutely. Right? Um, and the, the other distinction that I want to make is it's not as though, because, you know, Jeff talked, Jeff Evans, your incoming president here at the Minnesota Family Council talked in a recent episode about the importance of balancing love or truth and grace. I believe what the, yep. was the distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved the way that he articulated it. What I would add to his analysis, if I could be so bold, is that context matters, right? So my my primary example of this is the pulpit on Sunday versus the hospital bed. Sure. Okay. So a pastor at the pulpit on Sunday, if he's worth his salt, is pounding the pulpit, thumping the Bible, mm-hmm. talking about hellfire and brimstone and sin and, and righteousness and preaching the gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay. That same guy, intimidating, offensive, from the pulpit, when he goes to visit you at the hospital, he's gentle, yeah. he's warm, he's he's listening, he's accepting, he's kind, he's she's showing you the grace of God. Um, the balance very much depends on the context. Yeah, and so when I the context that I'm operating in as a legislator, I'm in the public square, I'm in a political arena, I'm dealing with the laws that are going to govern my neighbor. And if I love my neighbor as I love myself, then I'm going to fight tooth and nail to ensure that those laws are righteous and uphold his rights and and uphold the holiness of the God who I serve. Okay. So that means that I might not always be nice Mm, Yep. in terms of how I approach that fight. Just like a soldier is probably not going to be nice in the way that he approaches the task that is before him. That doesn't make him less godly. That doesn't make him less Christ-like. Right. But that's the context in which he finds himself. And it's it's an appropriate way to balance truth and grace in that role, in that moment. And so I think that this is possibly the chief deficit of the modern church is that we have lost all sense of context. And we have convinced ourselves that we just need to do the nice thing in any given moment in any given role, no matter what that is, and no matter what the effect of being nice, quote unquote, is, yeah. which is often being permissive and allowing licentiousness and depravity and evil yeah. to prevail. That's great. And I don't want to repeat you, but as you were talking, I was just thinking about Christ with the Pharisees <laughs> and Christ with the Syrophoenician woman. Yeah. To the same Savior, the same Messiah, who is perfectly God and perfectly man and never contradicts himself, right. but in two different contexts. Yeah. That's that's great. That's extremely good. I was also thinking about um, uh, St. Nicholas because uh, last night I went to uh, an Advent service and a St. Nicholas Day service. So shout out to Trinity Lutheran in, in Farmington where, where we were visiting. And um, the pastor talked about St. Nicholas as someone who uh, cared deeply about Christian doctrine and fought for it at the Council of Nicaea and who was also most famous for giving gifts to the poor of the city, hence everything about Christmas, St. Saint, Saint Nicholas, and who also wasn't afraid to punch a heretic, you know, allegedly. So that's th- that's at least three different ways in which St. Nicholas modeled Christ. Right. And so that, I'm just, I'm loving that. That's amazing. Okay, this is my last question, I swear. What gives you hope for Minnesota? Well, <clears throat> what gives me help, hope for Minnesota, and, and perhaps specifying it to Minnesota is too narrowing. Right? Sure. Do I have hope for Minnesota? Absolutely. Because God is a redeemer. And he loves, 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 loves to swoop in at the last minute and just defeat the enemy. He's done it time and time again. And so can Minnesota be brought back from the brink? Absolutely. But my actual hope is in just the knowledge, the general knowledge, that good prevails ultimately. Amen. Like light wins. Yeah. Um, God has already defeated 
sin. And so whether or not Minnesota ultimately is saved as a state is immaterial to the ultimate victory. Sure. Number one. But number two, as Christians, we're called to bear witness where we find ourselves. And as you know, when you were talking earlier about the Twin Cities, that's where the greatest opportunity lies Mm -hmm. to show the power of the gospel. I mean, you you talk about homelessness. This is a great example. How do we solve homelessness? Well, the the world's answer is we tax people and we reallocate that money and we build a bunch of housing and we pay everybody's mortgage and then everybody will have a home. Right. And that's how we're going to solve homelessness. We know the actual answer to the question, which is we foster virtue. If you foster virtue in the individual person, if you make disciples, Mm -hmm. a disciple is going to be virtuous. They're going to be productive. They're going to have honor. They're going to have faith. They're going to have hope. If you foster those characteristics in individuals, they're not going to be homeless. Right. That's the answer. Yeah. And so there's tremendous opportunity that we find in in this moment, um, certainly in this state, but just in the entire world to demonstrate the hope that is that is unique on our side mm-hmm. it, it can't be found anywhere else and um, we've got countless examples if we go back and we look you know the war on poverty all the way down that these ideas that they keep slinging of well just throw more money at it yep just just redistribute it just attack the privilege quote unquote mm-hmm. it doesn't work it never has it never will yep what does work and always has and always will is fostering virtue and productivity and honor and hope in the individual yeah. and families. And that is going to, there's going to be such a cornucopia of fruit that comes from those relationships and those values that you're not going to have to worry about social problems. Yeah. Folks, you heard it here first. Um, the light will overcome the darkness. Love will overcome hate. There's hope for us in this state as Christians. Um, for this state, but also for us as part of the global church of Christ, the bride of Christ, doing his will here on earth. And I think what a great message going into Christmas. The light will overcome darkness. Representative Hudson, I want to thank you so much for being here today. Um, This has been extremely illuminating. I'm sure it will be for our audience as well. I wanted to say one quick word as we come in towards the end of the year. Um, Minnesota Family Council is a 100% donor-supported organization, and we receive more than 50% of our donations here in these last few weeks of the year. So if it is important to you to have a voice for life, family, and religious freedom at the Capitol in St. Paul and throughout the state, please consider making a contribution at mfc.org forward slash donate. We want to be your voice and we want to partner with you to do that. So thank you so much for watching and listening to this episode of The Family Beacon. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of The Family Beacon podcast from Minnesota Family Council. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you're up to date on life, family, and religious freedom. You can follow us on Instagram at MN Family Council and subscribe to us on YouTube to watch our content. Get the facts, stand for truth. Thank you.